You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Will you please open your Bibles to Lamentations chapter 2? And I will warn you, this is sad, it really is, to, to begin with. Because here, we're turning to this lament of Jeremiah as he sees the the state that Jerusalem has got to. And perhaps in your mind, you're able to, in some way, picture Jeremiah stood in the ashes of a city that's been destroyed by the Babylonian armies. The house of God burned, ruined. What God had promised would happen, had happened. And Jeremiah, more than anybody else in that city, knew that the Babylonian invasion was the hand of God at work. And so we read in Lamentations 2 and verse 5, The Lord was as an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces. He's destroyed his strongholds. He's increased in the daughter of Zion, daughter of Judah, sorry, mourning and lamentation. He hath violently taken away his tabernacle as if it were of a garden. He has destroyed his places of the assembly. The Lord hath caused the solemn feasts and Sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion and despised in the indignation of his anger, the king and the priest. The Lord hath cast off his altar. He hath abhorred his sanctuary, hath given up into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord as in the day of a solemn feast. The Lord hath purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He hath stretched out the line, he hath not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Therefore he made the rampart and the wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the Gentiles. The law is no more. Her prophets also find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit upon the ground and keep silence. They have cast up dust upon their heads. They have girded themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem hang down their heads to the ground. Mine eyes do fail with tears. My bowels are troubled. My liver is poured upon the earth for the destruction of the daughter of my people because the children the suffering swoon in the streets of the city. So there was Jeremiah lamenting the fact that what's gone wrong here. So many things we can list from that passage of what's happened. Jeremiah understandably has tears running down his face, crying until tears won't come any longer. It's making him physically ill, seeing this terrible situation. And yet, brothers and sisters, yet, thankfully, God's plan with Israel was such that he would not cast them off altogether. We know Yes, the land lay like that for some 70 years, as as Jeremiah had prophesied it would do. 
But a time of restoration was coming when the problems that Jeremiah could see would be put to right. And although it's not the ultimate, we, we sang in our opening hymn there, of the ultimate restoration of, of Zion, we do have in this picture that we are going to study together a glimpse of the restoration. And certainly a time does come when God does restore, where the altar was cast off, we're going to see tonight. The altar is put back on its base. Where the temple was destroyed, we will see how it was rebuilt. The walls were destroyed, we won't see in our studies this week. But of course you know they were built again by Nehemiah. The feasts were forgotten. We'll see how they become kept again. The Sabbaths were forgotten. They'll be reinstated. The gates that were broken down, they'll be set up. The law that was no more. Well, in Ezra, we see a ready scribe coming along. There were no more prophetic visions. Well, we see in Haggai and Zechariah, the, the prophets coming again and speaking the word of God. The young women ashamed. Well, I think it's interesting to think that in Esther, we see surely the exhortation of uh, uh, a sister there great sister. As we said, I don't know if I said to you yesterday, but I certainly told the teens this morning that we believe Esther fits into the, to the historical time period between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7. That's where Ezra, uh, Esther fits in. Because Ezra uh, and Nehemiah were one book in the Hebrews, just the Ezra-Nehemiah book, as it were. So God had promised they would be in captivity for 70 years. But he'd promised too that they would return. There would be a restoration. And what's more, he's told them the name of the individual who would allow them to return. This is amazing, brothers and sisters, that some 150 years before Cyrus existed, Isaiah had prophesied. Now think about the history of Israel here. Isaiah, you're going back, aren't you, to the time of Hezekiah when the Assyrians were coming to take Israel into captivity. And now here we are in the time of, of Jeremiah and that we're thinking about when the Babylonians came and here we are now 70 years on from that even and we're thinking about when the exiles return. That is when this man Cyrus comes on the scene and Isaiah way back then was saying Cyrus is going to be the one who's going to say to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Isaiah had prophesied that. So let's turn to Ezra chapter 1 now. And if you do have a marker, it's definitely worth putting a marker in to this section. Because we will sort of come away from here a few times, but each time come back to Ezra. So we read in chapter 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And I think it's thrilling, really, to be able to see the hand of God so clearly at work here. In these two verses, I think we can see the words of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Daniel. Well, of course, Jeremiah is easy because he is mentioned by name. Uh, you see it there in verse 1, and I've kind of put Jeremiah 29 in verse 10. 
There might be another uh, link to Jeremiah there as well, to chapter 51 and verse 11, which I'll give you on the screen shortly. We, we touched on Isaiah. You remember we talked about Isaiah speaking about Cyrus in Isaiah 44 and 45. Uh, and it's in Isaiah 45 that in verse 13 that the prophet goes on to say about Cyrus, I have raised him up in righteousness. And now that is the word for stirred there in Ezra 1 and verse 1. Um, so the Lord stirred up, raised up the, the spirit of uh, Cyrus. So he's been stirred up by God, Isaiah 45 and verse 13. Now, the next one, we want to somehow get to Daniel, because what Cyrus says here is remarkable in verse 2. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And we want to particularly pick up on this, because this is incredible, really. One to think of this Gentile king speaking of, of Yahweh, but this phrase, the God of heaven, it is not a phrase that is used regularly in Scripture. That there are all the occurrences there on the screen, um, and we are going to, to turn to some of those together. But you can sort of see, can't you, that it's a regular phrase through Ezra, through Nehemiah, so that kind of uh, book together. Psalm 136, I think we'll be able to kind of touch on that. Uh, in a study later to see why that might come in. Certainly regularly through Daniel chapter 2, um, and of course 2 Chronicles 36. You, I'm sure you realize that the last two verses of 2 Chronicles 36 are just a repeat, or, or as you know, chapter 1 is a repeat of the end of 2 Chronicles 36. But I would like us to turn to Genesis 24 together. So let's leave our markers and head to Genesis chapter 24. to see its first use in the scriptures. And here we find Abraham is sending his servant back to Abraham's people to find a wife for Isaac. So he says to his servant, I'm going to make you swear, so sorry, this is Genesis 24 verse 3, by the Lord, the God of heaven, there's the God of the earth there as well. And then he's, he's making him swear because he wants him to make sure that he gets a son not from this land, but from the land of his fathers, as in actually you know, going back to uh, Haran. So let's pick it up in verse 6. Abraham said unto him, Beware thou that thou bring not my son thither again. Yahweh, God of heaven, there's our phrase, God of heaven, which took me, from my father's house, from the land of my kindred, where's that? Ur of the Chaldees, Babylon, which spake unto me and swear unto me, saying, unto thy seed will I give this land. He shall send his angel before thee, and thou shalt take a wife unto my son from thence. So amazing to see that, that Abraham is using that specific phrase, recalling the fact that God had called him from Babylon and promised him this land. He didn't want his son Isaac marrying a Canaanite. But we're not surprised to see the phrase, the God of heaven too, used in Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, predominantly. So the faithful in those days knew that God was at work to bring his people to the land 
that God had promised to Abraham. That the God of heaven who reigns over all the earth, he's in heaven, his dwelling place, that's true. But actually he's the one who has a purpose that begins in this land. Mount Zion is his chosen place. His work in the kingdoms of men is ultimately about bringing about his purpose in Israel. Will you come to Daniel now? It's Daniel chapter 2 that repeatedly uses the phrase, the God of heaven. And of course, every one of us will know that that's the most famous of chapters, the most famous of prophecies about God working in the kingdoms of men to bring about his purpose. And I'd like us to turn now to Daniel 5, where we can see the hand of God at work bringing about the, the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2, that the God of heaven is going to be at work now, bringing about the end of the head of gold, the Babylonian Empire, and bringing in the, the Medes and the Persians, the, the chests and arms of silver. And here in Daniel chapter 5, Daniel, of course, was there that night when Belshazzar, the wicked king, was drinking and celebrating in the most horrific of manners, blasphemous of manners. Read in Daniel 5. Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. And the king and his princes and his wives and his concubines drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood and of stone in the same hour. Note that, in the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against another. And so we see Belshazzar suddenly frightened, recognizing all the awfulness perhaps of what he's done. Daniel, of course, isn't joining in with his drunken behavior. But you remember that he is sent for and he gives a damning message to Belshazzar. Will you pick up at verse 25? This is the writing that was written. Meaning, meaning, tikal ufasin. This is the interpretation of the thing. Meaning, God have numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tikal, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Peres, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and to the Persians. Well, it's Herodotus that records for us what happened that night. Cyrus turned the Euphrates by a canal into the basin, which was then a marsh, on which the river sank to such an extent the natural bed of the stream became fordable. Hereupon, the Persians who had been left for the purpose at Babylon by the riverside entered the stream 
which had now sunk so as to reach about midway up a man's thigh, and thus got into the town. As it was, the Persians came upon them by surprise and so took the city. Owing to the vast size of the place, the inhabitants of the central parts, as the residents of Babylon declare, long after the outward portions of the city were taken, knew nothing of what had chanced, but as they engaged in a festival, continued dancing and reveling until they learned about the capture. And so Cyrus was there, approaching Babylon. But the Babylonians were too arrogant to believe that anyone could get into their city. We can imagine for those Jews, though, who were living in Babylon, it must have been spine-tingling to hear that a man leading an army towards Babylon was named Cyrus. Their hearts and their minds must have been racing. Can you imagine Daniel's excitement that night? As a young man, he'd been taken to Babylon, made a eunuch, put through trauma, but faithfully he'd served the God of heaven. He knew his Bible. The prophecy had said, Cyrus, Cyrus is the one. Cyrus was outside the walls. And notice what the next verse in Isaiah says. I told the young people this this morning. I could see them. They got their pencils out straight away. You've got to do the same. This is thrilling. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holding, to subdue nations before him. I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates. It's amazing, isn't it? There in Daniel 5, in our margin, surely against verse 6, the joints, of his, the joints of his loins were loose. We've got Isaiah 45, verse 1. The prophecies coming true. It's exactly what happened. He was quaking. With that in his mind, Daniel must have had such confidence giving that speech to Belshazzar. He could see the scriptures being fulfilled in front of his eyes. We believe that it was Belshazzar's arrogance of using those vessels that were taken from the temple in Jerusalem that would have angered God. This is, I think, a helpful cross-reference. Isaiah 51 and verse 11. Remember I mentioned to you in Ezra 1 that that word stirred up. This is the word here. Make bright the arrows, gather the shields. The Lord hath raised up the spirit of the kings of the Medes for his devices against Babylon to destroy it. Why? Because it is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance of his temple. So let's make sure we've got this then. Here they are, Daniel 6, Daniel 5, sorry, verse 2 and verse 3. He's taken these vessels out of the temple. So Nebuchadnezzar obviously took those many years before, but he's now taking those and abusing those vessels in using them for this orgy. And here, verse 5, I said to you, take note. In the same hour, that was the point. They stepped over a line, as it were. The vengeance of the temple. How dare you misuse the temple vessels. And as Daniel looked around in that foul banqueting hall, he'd have seen the vessels. And no, God's vengeance would happen. Babylon's days were numbered. 
Well, it's immensely significant that we're told that Daniel continued into the first years of King Cyrus. As an old man, probably in his late 80s, his prayers had been answered. He could see the God of heaven working in the kingdoms of men. He knew through Isaiah God's plan with Cyrus. And maybe this is my imagination, but surely we all think to this to a, a little bit, that Daniel, it wouldn't have taken him long to get speaking to Cyrus. Cyrus comes into this city. Daniel, one of the chief advisors. And surely he would have explained to Cyrus that the God of heaven is working through you. This is your role to defeat Babylon. And he'd have showed him the prophecies. As a young man in Babylon, God had revealed to him the answer to Nebuchadnezzar's dream. What's more, he would have surely explained that his role would be to give the decree to let the Jews go back to their land to rebuild the temple. So with that background, let's go back to Ezra chapter 1 again. And hopefully now we've seen from verse 2 the significance of that phrase that Cyrus used, the God of heaven. This is the most high God who rules in the kingdoms of men. He's the God who promised Abraham and his descendants this land. How appropriate it is that Cyrus refers to God as Yahweh, the God of heaven. He's giving the decree now to them to make the very journey that Abraham had taken so many years earlier, to leave Ur, to leave Babylon, and to travel to the land that God had chosen. What an amazing opening to this book and to see these prophecies coming true. And so we suggest that there's Jeremiah coming through, there's Isaiah coming through, there's Daniel coming through. And I want you to notice too that this proclamation that he makes in verse 2 was the voice, as it were, was put into writing. Now, the word writing, so the end of verse 1, is a sort of key word running through Ezra. But we think it's really interesting to sort of pick this out now, that the voice was put into writing. This voice has been preserved. Now, I know I'm working you hard, but this is good to keep us awake, isn't it? Come to Isaiah 45 again. Now, we've already noted that Isaiah 45 is about Cyrus. It says it in the first verse. We've noted from verse 13 the word raised. I have raised him up. And we saw that the word stirred up in Ezra 1 and verse 1. Now, I want you to think about this. Audience participation here. What in the British Museum, big clue, do we have from Cyrus? The Cyrus Cylinder. What is the Cyrus Cylinder? What's it made from? Stone? Clay? I'm going to go with clay. I prefer the answer clay. Okay? You'll see why in a moment. Okay? So, can you picture the Cyrus Cylinder? I'm going to put a picture of it on, on the screen shortly, okay? So, if you can't, don't worry. But the Cyrus Cylinder 
made from clay, Cyrus writes down the proclamation. It was put into writing. Cyrus Cylinder made from clay. Okay. That in mind, look at this. Isaiah 45, verse 9. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Do you know what the word maker is sometimes translated as? Come on, someone shout that louder. Potter. Okay. Woe unto him that striveth with his potter. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherd of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou, or thy work? He hath no hands. Woe unto him that saith unto his father, What begettest thou, or to the mother, what hast thou brought forth? Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and his maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands. Command ye me. I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens and all their hosts have I commanded. I have raised him up, Cyrus, in righteousness. I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and he shall let go my captives, not for price nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts. Now to me, that is just incredible to think about the fact that the Cyrus cylinder, okay, this famous cylinder, this there, the, the potter has made to put into writing Cyrus's thoughts. And here in Isaiah 45, God is saying, I'm the potter. I am the one who's in control. I am the one who's making these events happen. How thrilling is that? And when you think about the writing that is being referred to on the Cyrus cylinder. I think this is amazing. Think about this. The writing says they could leave Babylon. It was their free choice. They could set off on a journey. They could go on this journey to build the temple in Jerusalem. And they were going to be led by Jeshua and Zerubbabel. Now, if it's not sort of already ringing some bells you to think that really is quite significant. Will you come to Isaiah 52? Now, of course, this is about these people leaving Babylon. We read in Isaiah 52 and verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice, with the voice together shall they sing. For they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Break forth into joy, sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord hath comforted his people, he hath redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart ye, depart ye, go you out from thence, touch no unclean thing, go you out of the midst of her. Be clean, ye that bear the vessels of the Lord. For he shall go up, for ye shall not go out in haste, nor go by flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel shall be your reward. So that's an amazing passage, isn't it? That's speaking about them being able to go in the first instance to leave and they will be able to go back to Jerusalem to, to rebuild the waste places of Jerusalem 
those who carry the vessels, you think about Nehemiah, of course, but actually we're going to see how that they carry the vessels, they bring the vessels back to the temple. But here's the significance of this. Verse 7, you will know, is cited in Romans 10 in relation to the gospel. That's actually what this is about. That's what this prophecy really is all about. It's the gospel message that we can are able to leave, that we're able to be sort of released from the problem of captivity. The thing that holds us into captivity is sin. We're able to be released from sin and death. We, in the gospel, are able to then start a journey, aren't we? Start a building project in the ecclesia, and we're being led, of course, by Jeshua, uh, by the people that Jeshua and Zerubbabel represent in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, coming back to Ezra chapter 1, I, I hope you sort of get the sense of just how exciting this is. This part of scripture that we're studying can teach us lessons about our calling. It's the great parable of leaving Egypt, or of leaving Babylon. So in Ezra 1 now, in verse 3, you, this is part of the proclamation. Who is there? among you of all his people. His God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem. That's our phrase, isn't it? Go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God, which is in Jerusalem. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts, besides the freewill offering for the house of God that is at Jerusalem. And I've put as a cross-reference in my margin against uh, verse 4 there, Exodus 12 and verse 35, because that, that's what it reminds us of, doesn't it? It's like when the Israelites left Egypt and the Egyptians like poured on them, said, you know, take this, take this, gave them all these things to be able to support them in their journey. And so too here, the part of the proclamation is make sure they're given a help, give them silver, gold, good, good the, the whole lot. Help them as they go on this journey and they're heading off to Jerusalem. Now look how significant this is then. We read in verse 7. Also, Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem and had put them in the house of his gods. Even those, those vessels did Cyrus, king of Persia, bring forth by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and numbered them unto Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Sheshbazar is Zerubbabel, okay? Zerubbabel, one of the leaders. So he numbers them to Sheshbazar, to Zerubbabel, as he's going to now be one of the leaders, taking them back to the land. Now let's consider the vessels. They were taken to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar took them away. They were abused by Belshazzar. And as a result, God said to him, Meany, meany, tikal ufasa. And we thought about the fact that that means numbered, numbered. Your days are numbered. You've been found wanting, weighed and found wanting. Your kingdom is going to be divided. Your kingdom has had its time. It's been weighed, found wanting. It will be divided. It will be split up. And here in Ezra, we see what happens with the vessels themselves. We find this really interesting. That the vessels themselves were numbered. 
it says in verse 9, this is the number of them. The vessels were numbered. Okay, we've got that. We can also, if you just flick over briefly to Ezra chapter 8. Note in verse 24 and 25 that the vessels were weighed. The vessels have been numbered. The vessels have been weighed. But I think it's interesting. We see in verse 34 that by number and by weight of everyone, and all the weight was written at that time. But what you will find if you search through is that the vessels were not divided. They were numbered. They were weighed. But they were kept. They were not divided. But of course, the vessels in that temple were parables. Parables of what we should be. We should be God's vessels. Now, there in 2 Timothy 2, I put it on the screen for us. If a man therefore purge himself, he shall be a vessel unto honour. Now, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Uh, I've given you some other cross-reference there to compare from Romans 9, from 1 Peter 3. We are the vessels. If you come back to Ezra chapter 1 and Ezra chapter 2, you'll see that just as the vessels had been numbered, so were the people. Because the vessels were a parable of the people. Ezra 2 and verse 1. So at the end of verse uh, uh, Ezra chapter 1, you see speaking of the vessels, or the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. They've been numbered. All these did Sheshbazar bring up with him out of the captivity. So Zerubbabel was going to bring them up. They've been given to him. He, they're his responsibility. He's going to bring them up. But then in chapter 2, now these are the children of the province that went up out of the captivity of those which had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, carried away into Babylon, and now come again to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone into his city, which came with Zerubbabel. And keep going through. So you've got Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bishlam, Mizpah, Bigvi, Rehum, Baana. The number of the men of the people of Israel. They're numbered. Do you see how the, the connection between the vessels that were taken by Nebuchadnezzar went to Babylon, now coming back? Is connecting us to the people. It's the people that God is really interested in. It's the people that make up his temple that he really wants. Well, we might imagine that every Jew that was living in Babylon would have been keen to return. It's simply not the case. For some of them, it seems Babylon had got too comfy. People had settled. They'd got jobs, had nice houses. It was a long journey back. We suggest it was mainly the poor who made the, the answer to the call. And the evidence for that isn't enormous, but if you turn to the end of Ezra chapter 2, in verse 64, it says, The whole congregation together 
was 42,303 score. Besides their servants and their maids, of whom they were, of whom there were, sorry, 7,337, and there were among them 200 singing men and singing women. Their horses were 736, their mules, 245, their camels, 435, their asses, 6,720. And some of the chief of the uh, fathers, when they came to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to be set in its place. Well, the calculation as to why we're suggesting it's mainly the poor that would go back is that of the 42,360 that went back, it looks like a sixth had servants, which would suggest then that 85% didn't have servants. Just under 20% had an animal. So it would suggest that most of the people were poor and yet willing to make that journey. Of course, it was the Lord Jesus who said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And that's not to say that some rich folk didn't respond. So again, just the verse 68 that we read together talks about the fact that some of the chief of the fathers, they offered freely and they gave after their ability unto the treasure of the work three score and 1,000 drams of gold, 5,000 pounds of silver and 100 priests garments. So it's not to say that there weren't richer folk who didn't respond. And uh, yeah, there's some sort of pretty big numbers that are suggested there. But this journey was certainly a long and arduous journey. We know when Ezra, so this is not Ezra's time. Ezra's time isn't for many, many years yet till he comes back. But we know when Ezra did come back, it took some four months. We know that from Ezra chapter 7 and verse 9. And on top of that, it's very clear that there were dangers of enemies and such as lying wait, people who would ambush them on their way, especially if they picked up they were going with treasures uh, as they were. But under the hand of God, they arrived in the land. And it seems initially that people went to their hometowns, I would guess where their ancestors had previously lived. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua seemed to have instructed them to make sure they came back to Jerusalem in the seventh month. So just pick up the final verse of Ezra 2. The priests, the Levites, some of the people, and the singers, the porters, the Nephilims, dwelt in their cities, and all Israel in their cities. So when they get there, they seem to go into their cities. But, chapter 3, verse 1, when the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Then stood up Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Zerubbabel is the leader. And he also has the Babylonian name, Sheshbazar, which means worshipper of fire. My wife said, do not say this, John, but I can't help myself. It's just a bit of a bizarre name, isn't it? You know? Okay, I'll, I'll remember next time not to bother. He, he's the royal descendant. He, he has a claim to the throne of David. And so Zerubbabel, his name means sown in Babylon. We think of uh, the Lord Jesus being described in Isaiah as a root out of a dry ground. And in a sense, that it's that same idea. Like this one has been sown in Babylon. 
Babylon was a spiritual wilderness, yet God raised up Zerubbabel for this task. Working alongside him is Jeshua, the priest. And Jeshua is the same as Joshua, you know, Jesus, Yah saves. So these men combine to, to represent the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as our priest and our king. They're going to lead the people out of Babylon, out of the world. So it's exciting too to see the description of the people who are with them. You just see then at the end of verse 1 of chapter 3, uh, trying to put some emphasis here, that they are all together as one man in Jerusalem. Uh, and that, that's just such a lovely thing to see, isn't it? Because in a sense, we're seeing here a stunning picture of the Lord Jesus and the saints with a mission to build a temple to set up the worship of Yahweh in Jerusalem. And the first thing that they do is to build the altar, to get the altar back on its base. Let's have a look at this. So chapter 3 and verse 3. They set the altar upon its base. Now remember from Lamentations, that come off, the altar wasn't there. First thing they do, they get the altar upon its basis. For fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. And they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. Well, surely the lesson that comes out of verse 3 is that the basis of our salvation does not change. Here they are, many, many years later in history, and the altar is put on the same basis. And that's such an important lesson, I think, for us to remember. The base of our salvation has not changed. As Christadelphians, we have a foundation statement in our statement of faith. That the book, currently known as the Bible, consisting of the scriptures of Moses, the prophets, the apostles, is the only source of knowledge concerning God and his purposes at present, extant, or available in the earth. And that the same were wholly given by inspiration of God in the writers, and are consequently without error in all parts of them, except such as may be due to errors of transcription or translation. That foundation, brothers and sisters, must never change. If the scriptures, which are the basis of our faith, are treated lightly, and we start picking and choosing the bits that we like and rejecting the bits that we don't like, we're in serious trouble. This is the only thing that utterly separates us from the world and from every other system of worship. We genuinely believe this. We genuinely hold on to this as the word of God. Just as they had left Babylon behind, so too we must remember that what separates us from the world, which includes all the apostate worship that goes on around us, is our desire to build on the foundation of God's word. And I also just think it's interesting to see this in verse 3, that they get this done first. For fear was upon them because of the people of the, those countries that were around them. The leaders knew that the best way to deal with the problem of the surrounding people was to get it right with God. Now to me that is such an important lesson again that we must hold on to. If we are fearful of the reaction of the world, and I do not doubt that all of us at times will have had that. It might be through a work situation. 
or, or something or talking to neighbors and have a, a sense of thinking, oh, heck, no, I, I, I want to get it right by you. But the lesson here is that even when there is fear concerning the countries around, the key is get it right with God. They got the altar on its basis because they were nervous about the people around them. If we're fearful of the reaction of the world, the best thing we can do is to get it right with God. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus? Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And so their attitude was right. They were able then to sacrifice to God. And so we see in the end of verse 3, how that they were offering then burnt offerings. The burnt offering, of course, spoke of total dedication. Here these people were dedicating their lives, demonstrating in that offering a desire to give their all to God. So let's conclude with some lessons that we can perhaps learn. Recognize the power of God's word in so many ways, but most certainly see this, that what he promises will happen does happen, and it will happen. Trust that God knows the vessels which are his, and he is working to bring them to his land. Hold on to the word, the foundation of our faith. The word is wholly inspired. It's the basis of our lives. Get things right with God. Do not be changed or compromised through fear of the world. Get it right with God. So you can start whenever you want, and then uh, I'll, I'll mute myself so I don't interfere. Cool. All right. Thanks, brother. In our last class, we saw the importance of leaving Babylon, being numbered with the faithful vessels. We thought about Cyrus as a type of the Lord Jesus, his proclamation, which was put into writing, being like the gospel, giving people the choice to get involved in the building work of the ecclesia. We thought about the irony of him being a potter and his writing being on a clay cylinder, which we still have today. And yet in a famous passage about him in Isaiah 45, it's really clear that God is the potter, guiding Cyrus's right hand. God even says, Cyrus has got no hands. God was directing his ways. God's angels and, and men like Daniel, we believe, directed Cyrus to proclaim liberty to the captives. Those returning were like the vessels. And under Zerubbabel and Jeshua, they gathered in Jerusalem and got the altar on its base. 
So come with me now to Ezra, Ezra chapter 3, and we'll pick up where we left off. So Ezra chapter 3, and we left off in the end of verse 3. Let's go in now at verse 4, where it says, They kept also the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offering by number, according to the custom, as the duty of every day required. So we can see that they're keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's moving to think of them making their booze, their tents, in what would have been a ruined city. You think, you know, they've come back from Babylon. The land is a wasteland. The city, the, the walls are down, the gates are off. It, it's a mess. And yet here they are coming together. And they're looking to, to build up these, these little booze they've got and spending this time uh, doing the Feast of Tabernacles. We know that they were fearful of the people of the land who were suspicious of their return. But there must have been such a feeling of excitement, too. They knew that they had permission to be there and to get building. And this was the choice they'd made. And if you look at the end of verse four, you see people are bringing or the end of verse five. Sorry, people are bringing free will offerings. Now, this is really important to me. There are several key phrases that we see in Ezra. I've put some of them on the, the screen for us, but this is one of them. I think it's really worth colouring. It's so important. From the very beginning in Eden, God set up choice. We have free will. As a parent would educate a child and explain to them what the right options are and how bad options can lead to suffering, even death. So, too, God has given us his word. But ultimately, God wants people who choose his ways. If you don't want it, then you've made your choice. You've been warned. God's purpose concerns those who make a choice. We have free will. We're choosing God's ways over our own because we love him and see his character as one that we want to share. Time and again, when it comes to a physical house being built, we note that God is interested in those bringing freely. It's crucial. In the end, the house that God wants us to be part of is, you know, the ecclesia, isn't it? That That's the house that God wants to be part of, too. But if you look back at the time when the tabernacle was built, you, you see that in the very first verses about the tabernacle, it tells us God wants those who will give willingly. When David was organising the uh, the things for the temple, the materials for the temple to be built under Solomon, again, you'll see a key phrase at that point, those who are offering willingly. And here in our chapter in verse five, we see this same uh, lesson being taught. So here then we have these people coming together to build the foundation of this temple under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Jeshua, the temple is now being built up. Certainly the foundation of it is being laid. And it's lovely to note that they're clearly thinking back to the time of David. So why would we say that? And why would they be doing that? And I think it's because men of faith are building on the same base. So, so like David, these men have a great desire to build a house for God. We've already noted that, the offering willingly, but 
this is a really key one, isn't it? That just as David got the wood for the temple from Lebanon, the cedars of Lebanon, and got, you know, Hiram, we remember, to ship out the logs from Lebanon, bring them down the Mediterranean, back in at Joppa, and then by cart along to, uh, to Jerusalem, where the temple was laid. We see them following this same pattern. It's there in verse 7, isn't it? Yeah, they got them, those of Tyre and Sidon, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the Sea of Joppa, according to the grant that they had of Cyrus, king of Persia. And we also note that they make sure that as many people as possible can be involved in the work. So the end of verse 8, the, the Levites from 20 years and old and upward uh, were involved. And again, we look back to the time of David when he uh, changed the, the time then the Levites could be involved to make sure that more could be, to, in the end, looking to try to support the spiritual well-being of the, the land. We notice the phrase, they set forward the work of the house of the Lord, is a phrase that, again, we see in 1 Chronicles 23 in verse 4 with David's preparation. And of course, it's made super clear, isn't it? When in verse 10, it says that they've been doing these things after the ordinance of David, the king of Israel. So we read then in verse 10 that when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because he's good for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. What a thrilling time it must have been for them to be able to get that foundation laid now, to, to see that this was coming together. And the phrase, his mercy endures forever, that they use there in their singing. So verse 11, they were praising, giving thanks unto the Lord because he is good for his mercy endures forever. That phrase is the refrain in Psalm 136, which interestingly is the only psalm that mentions the God of heaven. That was the phrase that we looked at yesterday and that I've put there the references we looked at. But you can see that th this idea that the God of heaven, whose mercy endures forever, we see those ideas coming together in Psalm 136. And we're not surprised to see that that's a psalm that most considered to be a psalm that was sung, written after the exile. Of course, the point is that the God of heaven that brought them along the same path that had guided Abraham out of Babylon to set up a place of worship here in the land. So what a day. What excitement. Yet the occasion was undermined by some of the older generation. And we have a contrast here, it seems to me, from the beginning of the chapter. Remember at the beginning, we say in chapter 3 and verse 1, that they were together as one man. And yet now, we read this in verse 12 of chapter 3. Many of the priests and Levites, chief of the fathers, who were ancient men that had seen the first house, when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, wept with a loud voice, and many shouted aloud for joy. 
so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. But the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. And you wonder if it was this discord amongst brethren that the adversaries got a sniff of and decided to drive in a wedge. Notice chapter 3, those final verses saying in the final phrase, the noise was heard afar off. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard. And the same lesson has got to be there for us, hasn't it? We must do all we can to keep unity. If not, we'll find ourselves open to the adversaries of God. In this case, the adversaries are sly. They talk about a desire to join forces. Verse 2 says, they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, let us build with you, for we seek your God as ye do. We do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Asher, which brought us up hither. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, ye have nothing to do with us to build an house unto our God. But we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia has commanded us. This is where Ecclesias need strong leadership, isn't it? Zerubbabel and Jeshua have the sense to say, we want nothing to do with you. Why do you think they want nothing to do with them? Well, surely it's because they knew their foundation of faith was completely different. And this is a real challenge in our ecclesial life today. Of course, we want to be inclusive. We should reach out to everyone. But we should remember that our fellowship is exclusively based on God's word. There can be no compromise there. In this case, the adversaries bring an end to the work. And so we read in verse 4 that the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building and hired counsellors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So hired counselors frustrated the work of building God's house. The adversaries would be a thorn in their side. And we see that the work didn't get started again, as you see in verse 5, until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. In fact, what I'd like to do is put an ellipsis at the end of verse 5 and put in your margin... Chapter 5 and verse 24, because we know exactly till when the, the work ceased till. And so really, you can put from verse 6 until the end of verse 23 in brackets, and we're going to come on to that in a moment. But you can see that verse 5 says that the work stops until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Verse 24 says then ceased the work, it stops the work of the house of God, the temple, which is at Jerusalem. It stopped, ceased, until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So the work stops. And we believe that that work is stopping for some 17 years. There's a little bit of debate, and some people have heard saying a little bit less, some people have tied a bit more, but it seems to me, from my study, it's 17 years that that work stops for. And even when it started again, they still had problems 
from the local leaders. So, for example, come into chapter 5 now. So chapter 5 is when the work starts again, 17 years later. And at that time, it says in verse 3, there came Tatnai, the governor on this side of the river, and Shethar Bosnai and their companions, and turned to them, who had commanded you to build this house and to make up this wall? And they caused problems, and Tatnai then writes a letter to Darius, who's the king, and says, you know, who's given these people permission to do this work? And we've got a copy of the letter which he writes, which is there from chapter 5, verse 7, to the end of chapter 5, to chapter 5, verse 7 to 17. And then Darius, the king, writes back to Tatnai in chapter 6 and says, they have been given permission. I've checked the annals. Cyrus did give them permission. They were allowed to come and do this building. So leave them alone. And what's more, use the taxes to help pay for them. So have a look at this. This is pretty awesome, really. In, in chapter 6 now, and verse 6, it says, now, therefore, Tatnai, governor beyond the river, this is, this is from Darius, the king, telling Tatnai what to do. The governor beyond the river, Shethar Bosnai, and your companions, the Arphaxites, which are beyond the river, be far from them. Let them go. Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews, Zerubbabel, and the elders of the Jews build this house of God in his place. Moreover, I make a decree that ye shall do to the elders of these Jews for the building of this house of God that are the king's goods, even of the tribute, the taxes beyond the river, forthwith expenses be given unto these men that they be not hindered. So how thrilling is that to think that 17 years later, you know, the work does get started again. Tatnai tries to stop it, but Darius writes back to Tatnai and says, no, don't you stop that. What's more, you make sure you help them to get this work going again. Well, I guess all of you are thinking, oh my goodness me, we're going at a rocket pace here and we are, aren't we? we're flying through history. Come back to chapter four and you'll see now, I hope, I'm going to attempt to explain this a couple of times, why I've attempted to go right into the future there. So we left off in Ezra 4 and verse 5. Hopefully we've all got now that from verse 6 to the end of verse 23 is in brackets. But this part in brackets is really important. What the inspired writer is doing is helping us to see the magnitude of the problem that these adversaries cause. Okay, that, I think, summarizes it. That the writer is helping us to see the magnitude of the problem that these adversaries are going to cause. Now, although the work on the temple does resume some 17 years later, the adversaries keep causing problems way beyond that time. We saw Tatnai trying to cause problems, but beyond that time, the adversaries are causing problems. Beyond the time of Ezra, beyond the, into the time of Nehemiah, the adversaries still keep causing problems. And it's here in Ezra chapter 4 that we're being helped to see the magnitude of the problem of these adversaries, looking to stop the temple being built, then the walls of Jerusalem being built, they keep causing problems. If you look at this timeline, the part in the box is the time that we are looking at in our studies. However, these adversaries cause problems into the time of Esther, into the time of Ezra, 
and into the time of Nehemiah. And it's Ezra 4 that's going to show us that. Now, we know these problems continue because of the letters which are written in Ezra chapter 4. So we're going to put them on the screen now. Do not panic. Okay? Sometimes when you see a table, you're, oh, okay? don't panic. Okay? So let's try to explain the table. We've got the time in history that the letters were written. We've got by whom the letters were written. The red just tells you it's a negative letter that's looking to cause problems. You know, the black one there, when it's written like that, it's a positive letter, which is being helpful. Okay? And then you see to who the letter was written. So hopefully, kind of nothing too stressful there. But these letters are sometimes written from the adversaries, other times the, the king in reply. You, you can see that the letters were written in the time of Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel. All the letters in chapter 4 are further ahead in history, written at points that we'd suggest are outside the immediate history, which is covered in the Ezra-Nehemiah book. So that's why they, they had to go somewhere. You know, they, they've not sort of put, gone on in Ezra, after Ezra chapter 10. Instead, we've got these letters put here to show us the magnitude of the problem that the adversaries cause. So just looking at that table now, you tell me, okay, this is, there's a big clue there for you, but which is the first letter which is written? Come on, somebody call it out. Which, I, I promise you this is not a trick question. Which is the first letter? Number one, well done, okay? So this one here, Dave said to me yesterday, John, you will always stay behind the lectern, won't you? So there won't be a problem. Sorry, Dave, okay? Give me two seconds, let's make sure we've got this. So letter number one, okay? This is the first one, and I'm going to put them in chronological order in a minute, okay? Those letters that are in chapter four are later on in history, okay? That's the, the, the key thing that we've got to try to, to get from it there. So let's just have a look at this now. In verse 6, it says, In the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, wrote they an accusation. So, I mean, it might well be that that letter, you know, we don't know this at all, but could have been written by Haman, okay? We know he was an adversary like these men were. Then we see another letter that's written after that one in verse 7. In the days of Artaxerxes, wrote Bishlam, Mithridil, Tabil, and the rest of their companions unto Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the writing of the letter was written in the Syrian tongue and interpreted in the Syrian tongue. And then we've got another letter in verse 8. Rehum, the chancellor, and Shimshai the scribe wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, in this sort. Now, this particular letter, we have a copy of. So this particular letter, if you see in verse 11, it says, this is the copy of the letter that they sent, even unto Artaxerxes, the king. So they send a letter at that time, and we get a response from that letter. So verse 17, have a look at. Chapter 4, verse 17, then sent the king an answer unto Rehum the chancellor and to Shimshai the scribe and to the rest of their companions. So we get an answer to that letter. So I hope you can see that these letters are going way ahead into history. 
Why are these letters, which are actually so much further ahead in history, inserted at this point? Well, my suggestion is that the inspired writer is showing how significant the problem of the adversaries was and how far-reaching into subsequent history it would take us. So we're going. To, I said I'd try and go through this twice, so we'll recap this again. Chapter 4 and verses 3 and 4 is in the time of Cyrus, when they build the foundation of the temple. They get it going. But in his time, the work of the building stops. So they get the foundation laid, and the adversaries hire counsellors, and they stop the temple work going any further. The work on the temple, though, does get going again in the second year of Darius. We know that from verse 24. But after they started again, Tatnai, in chapter 5 now, and verse 3, he writes a letter hoping to stop the work. So we're going to put the letters in chronological order now. So really, the Tatnai letter is the first letter that we know about, okay? Although the, um, we know that the hired counsellors tried to cause problems, we don't know that there was a letter that was written at that stage. So the first letter we know about is here from Tatnai. Darius replies and lets them get on and finish the work. And that reply is in chapter 6. And so as we'll see later, they do manage to finish the work of building the temple. And that's just a great time in history. However, chapter 4 is demonstrating to us that the adversaries persist. And so in chapter 4 and verse 6, we're taken forward in time to the time of Ahasuerus, when the adversaries again wrote a letter, and we're suggesting that Esther could well be between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7. Okay, that, that's it's not certainly my suggestion, uh, but it's certainly a suggestion that makes a lot of sense to me when I read that. After Esther, okay, that's between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7, in chapter 7 of Ezra, that's when Ezra himself actually turns up. He arrives on the scene. And he is given a letter from Artaxerxes, giving him permission to journey to Jerusalem and to restore the worship of God there. So that is letter four. In chapter four and verse seven, another letter was written after that in the days of Artaxerxes, and that is later in history again. And we are suggesting that that letter, along with the next ones, are between Ezra 10 and Nehemiah 1. And that's why they've, kind of, they've got to go somewhere in this, in this book, and they've been put here. Now, what I want you to really see now, and this is where we can get our colouring pencils out, is that it's in this letter, okay, letter number six, where Rehum, the Chancellor, Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter, and we've got a copy of this letter. You've got to see now a key word that comes in this letter to understand why we can be absolutely confident that this is not talking about this time, it's talking about a time much further ahead in history, which makes sense with Artaxerxes. Look at this, verse 12. This is part of their letter. Be it known unto the king that the Jews which came up from thee to us are come unto Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and the bad city. 
What was the key word? Well done, you picked it up. Verse 13, be it known unto the king that if this city be built. Verse 15, know that this city is a rebellious city. The end of verse 15, the city. Verse 16, we certify the king that if this city, look at the reply from the king, it's about the city. Verse 19, it, verse 21, it's about the city. Do you see the key word here? At this stage, Jerusalem is a ruined city. Okay, they're not building the city. They've only just got the foundation of the temple being built. Okay, they want to build the, 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 the rest of the temple. And it's after they build the temple that Nehemiah is able to come and to help to build the city. But certainly, this is not talking about this stage in history. These are letters that are looking into the future. They are helping us to see that this problem persists. And, and if you sort of need that um, sort of underlining anymore, you'll note then in verse 24, okay, this is where we pick up, isn't it, about the actual record, that then cease the work of the house of God. So that's a key phrase that you can run all the way through Ezra, the house of God, the temple. But this letter is in relation to the city. Now, of course, years later, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, Nehemiah asked if he could go and rebuild the walls. And we know that he was given permission and did go back to rebuild. It was, it was a, a sort of project that took some 12 years to complete. But just this is the last complicated thing that I'm going to show you here. Interestingly, at that time when Nehemiah was building, Sam Ballot, okay, so apologies, that's what we're suggesting in terms of the, the timing of those letters, but I wanted to just point this out to you now. Sam Ballot, when he writes a letter to try to stop Nehemiah building, what is interesting is that in Nehemiah 6, which is where we get a copy of Sam Ballot's letter from verses 5 to 7, he copies this letter from Ezra 4 and verse 11 to 16 by starting off the Jews, telling them they're rebellious, telling them they're going to be hurtful to the kings. Why does he copy this letter? Because this letter worked. This letter did stop the building of the walls of Jerusalem for a while. Okay? We know that the building of the walls of Jerusalem got started. We know that. If you just come to Ezra chapter 9, So they got the temple built, that's fine, the end of Ezra 6. Then they'd have got started on building the walls, okay? Because we read in Ezra 9 and verse 9, Ezra's prayer, we were bondmen, yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage, but hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us a reviving, to set up the house of our God and to repair the desolations thereof and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. So, yes, they would have just got started on that work. But those adversaries wrote a letter. The letter we believe, the one in Ezra chapter 4, the one that we've got a copy of. That did stop the work because the, the reply came back, yes, stop them doing that work. The work stopped for a while, sadly. We then know that when we get into Nehemiah, Nehemiah in front of our tax services manages to 
get the, uh, the, the permission to go back and to get cracking again on building the wall. So take a breath, brothers and sisters. You did really well. Um, yeah, apologies if I didn't do really well. But look, have a look for yourself. Try and look through those letters another time. I think you'll begin to, to kind of make the same conclusions. It's one of those things that I spent hours and hours and hours trying to get my head around and then read Brethren's book like uh, Uncle Michael's on the exiled return and think, I wish I'd just read that earlier, okay? Uh, so, so I suggest that, uh, yeah, you, you do the same. You see that uh, really that's the, the thing, that's showing issues of the adversaries going into the future. So we noted that the building work stopped for some 17 years. We've tried to make sure that everyone understands that these uh, letters have been included to help us to see how big a problem the opposition was. Uh, they help us to see how far-reaching it was. And, and the lesson, I think, that comes out is that no matter where you are in history, if you are looking to, to build God's house, you're going to come across adversity. You know, that is a key lesson that we're going to see. But yes, the building work stops for some 17 years. And if you turn now to the end of Ezra 4, we'll really try and pick up now where the chronological history picks up. So chapter 4 and verse 24 again. Then ceased the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased unto the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Then, at that point, in the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia, the prophets, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edu, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. Then rose up Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. And with them were the prophets of God, helping them. So let's turn now to Haggai chapter 1 and just get a sense of the, the loveliness of Haggai and Zechariah being there, having to speak to them, giving them a hard message, getting to recognize that their priority needed to be to build the house of God. They couldn't leave the foundation just as it was and, and nothing being done. Of course, it must have been a challenge that the adversaries brought to the, to the mindset of the people, really, that the time for God's house perhaps hadn't come to be built. And the reason we say that is because the people knew that Jeremiah had prophesied about a 70-year period where the king of Babylon would have rule over them, and also a period regarding the desolation of the land. And it's a bit ambiguous at times as to whether it's the same 70-year period. But almost perhaps because of that ambiguity in terms of the 70 years, it seems that the people sort of decided, well, look, we've got these adversaries like stopping us. Perhaps now is just not the right time to be doing this building work. And so they stopped with the building work. They knew that the temple was made desolate in 586. So 70 years on from them would take them to 516. So the house was stopped building around 536. It seems that they were thinking to themselves, well, let's just stop. We can justify to ourselves that the time is just not right to be doing this building work. But their excuse was lame. And clearly the work was left until in 520, at this point, God sent Haggai and Zechariah to stir them up to the building 
of the temple. So let's pick it up. In the second year of Darius, so do you see, surely you've got it in your cross-references, circle that one, Ezra 4, 24, Ezra 5, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, the son of Josedach, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O you, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. A brother made an excellent point here. He pointed out that by justifying to themselves that it was the wrong time for God's house to be built, the people were essentially saying it's the right time for God's house to be laid waste. And when you think of it that way round, it hits you how wrong their priorities were. How could it ever be the right time for God's house to be laid waste? Do you remember we saw that when they built the foundation, they followed the example of David? Well, clearly David's example had gone out of their minds. David famously felt uncomfortable when he lived in a house, but God's house was a tent. David wasn't comfortable with that. He wanted to build a house for God. But the example of David seemed to have gone from their minds at this time. The sealed houses that they were building may well have been using the wood that was designated for the temple. So do you see in verse 4, Haggai saying to them, Is it time for you, O you, to dwell in your sealed houses? Well, the reason we're suggesting that is because the word for sealed is only used on six occasions in the Bible. Four of them speak of being sealed with cedar okay so there's uh, some of those occasions there well where does cedar come from uh, the cedars of lebanon where would these people get it from many of whom we'd noted previously weren't particularly well off well just hold this passage and just quickly jump with me back to ezra 3 ezra 3 and verse 7 we've read this already but let's just make sure that we've got this connection. Ezra 3 in verse 7 is where they gave money to the masons, the carpenters, and meat and drink and oil unto them, as I unto them of Tyre, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the Sea of Joppa. So, yeah, we, we believe then that this is highly likely that the cedar wood that they've got is wood that was ready to build for the temple. We know that they only got as far as building the foundation. And if you remember, the foundation, we know from Zechariah, was made of stone. So this cedar that's been lying around, as it were, for some 17 years, okay, we know the cedar is linked to when cedar was used to make sealed houses. Okay? It seems that this is what they were doing. Okay? They were make, putting this cedar paneling in their houses while the house of God laid waste. 
I think it's also interesting to me to note that Solomon spent more time building his own house than God's. And we know he made his own palace to have cedar paneling. And it seems that for those people in Haggai's day, it's almost as if they had fallen into the same trap. You, like me, might well believe that Ecclesiastes were written at the end of Solomon's life when having taken life to the limits of what humans would and could do as the great pinnacles of happiness, he built great houses. He drank copious amounts of wine. He created beautiful gardens. He had pools of water. He had servants. He had great possessions. Yet he summed it all up as pointless, as vanity, as striving after wind. And here, in a sense, this is what they had to learn. Verse 5, now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Haggai again, Haggai 1, verse 6 now. You sow much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain, bring wood and build the house. And I will take pleasure in it. And I will be glorified, saith the Lord. So we're going to pick up again in Haggai tomorrow with this exhortation to consider our ways. And we're going to see how Haggai most certainly exhorts us to. But let's try to conclude now with some lessons together. We thought about the fact that God gives us free will. He wants people who choose his ways. But when we think about the choice, there is no choice. I always remember this, that Moses in Deuteronomy 30 says to the people, and he's calling out to the people, he says, I set before you this day, life or death. Listen to what he says next. So there's a choice, life or death. The only thing he says is this, choose life. He doesn't say choose life or choose death. Of course he doesn't. There is no choice. I set before you this day, life or death, choose life. Yes, we have free will, but of course there is no choice. This is what we should want to do to serve God. And God wants people who choose his ways. God is looking to people, men and women of faith, who will look to other examples of men and women of faith. That's the most lovely Bible study in all the world to do. Just It happens almost every time you ever study a Bible character, you see how that they pick up from another Bible character. And you realize that, of course they do. Men and women of faith, that's what they do. They look back to other men and women of faith and they learn from them. Just as we saw those guys looking to David and to Solomon. Yes, we're going to follow that same pattern. Men and women of faith learn from other men and women of faith. We thought about the importance of trying to keep unity in the ecclesia. When we're not as one man, the adversaries can cause real difficulties. We have thought about the fact that it's highly likely that there will be times when the adversaries do come in in ecclesial life, but never settle back and allow ourselves to, to go along with the idea that, well, I suppose this is just the sign of the times, the ecclesia is going to go waste. Keep building, keep working to keep the unity where we can. 
what we should do is prioritize building the ecclesia above all else. This is where our resources should go. Support ecclesial events. Now, there are, and I know that there won't be in this room, but we've got to encourage, aren't we, like those who sort of think that they're bound, that the only fraternal they can go to is their own. We've got, to, we've got to get out of that sort of mindset. We've got to offer lifts. We've got to help people to make sure that we realize we're part of a, a community that's, that's UK-wide, worldwide. We've got to give time to those who are struggling. And some people are so good at that. I was talking to a brother on a walk today who sounds like he's had a seriously difficult life. He was telling me about a relative of his from Paul's Levin meeting. And I knew this auntie. I'll tell you about this, Auntie. When I was poorly as a 16-year-old, I ended up in hospital for almost a year. And this auntie wrote a card every single week. It blew me away. And as a 16-year-old, you can imagine, I mean, there's not a whole lot you can do on a hospital bed that's particularly naughty, but I, I still want it to be, you know? And, and, you know, you're trying to fight against these things. And I see that sort of love pouring in not, not just to me, to, to, to my family in general. Think, what is driving these people? And of course, it's this. This is what changes us, what transforms us, what helps us. This is what want, makes us want to reach out and support one another. We should keep supporting one another, brethren and sisters, on our walk. This is how we build up the ecclesia. We should support inter-ecclesial events. We should... Book onto a campaign. No, have, have we come to a barber school just simply because we, we want to put some notes in our margins? I love doing that type of thing. You know I do. I'll tell you to stick it in. Yeah. But, but, and of course, we do that thing because they do strengthen our faith. It means the next time we come to Ezra, we think, oh, yeah, I know about that. That's a bit about the city. But then we can keep building on that and learn a bit more. And these things do deepen our faith, which is great. So, of course, it's super to come on a Bible school. And we're supporting one another. And we're having conversations with people who perhaps might be a bit low and things like that. What a great thing to be able to do. But what work are we doing? When was the last time we booked onto a campaign and thought, do you know, this isn't going to be about me. I'm just going to simply give. I'm going to go and I'm going to give up. And you know, every time you go, every time if I ever go on these things, anyway, I kind of book on like, oh my goodness me, I don't want to be going on this. But I walk away like this, you know. I'm dancing. It's, it's great. You have such fun, don't you? You, you bump into people who, who want to talk about these things and you, you always come away with a real buzz in your heart. So God knows what's best for us. When he says, you know, fellowship is what you need, he knows that and he's helping us. So make sure that, before the end of today, before the end of this week, we think to ourselves, yes, I'm going to give, I'm going to build up in the ecclesia. Get involved in mission work, get involved with young people. There's so many things, of course, that we can do. Let's make sure that we prioritize building the ecclesia above all else. So yesterday, we concluded our study around sort of the, these opening verses in Haggai with consider your ways, which you will see there 
in verse 5. Uh, you see it again in verse 7. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Uh, and the word consider is made of two Hebrew words. And it, it, we might sort of say in a modern way, uh, lay it up to your heart. But that's the key, that they're being told to think carefully, think deeply about their priorities. What are their priorities? So verse 6, you've sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. Clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And this is such an exhortation for every generation. All of us need to think, don't we? What does our energy go on? Are we, and you remember the, the context here, are we building our houses or God's? Go back to verse 2. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time is not come for the Lord's house to be built. But, verse 4, Is it time for you to dwell in your sealed houses while this house lies waste? So they're putting their priority into their own material things, but they're not putting their priority into the building of the Lord God's house. So all of us need to think to ourselves, what does my energy go on? Building God's house or mine? The exhortation here is, verse 8, go up to the mountain, bring wood and build the house, the temple, and I will take pleasure in it and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. You looked for much and lo, it came to little, and when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why? saith the Lord of hosts. Because my house lies waste, and you run every man to his own house. Well, no surprise, as ever with these parts of Scripture, we see time and again patterns of Scripture and things like this being picked up. And this passage, we believe, is picked up by the Lord Jesus Christ. So, of course, we're going to come back here, but let's go to Luke chapter 12 together. And you'll see how the Lord picks up this passage to exhort us. So I'll have a go at doing some emphasis, but no, you'll be able to work it out pretty quickly. Luke 12, verse 22. Jesus said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, neither for the body what ye shall put on. For the life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. Consider. The ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? And which of you, with taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? If ye then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So the people in Haggai's day essentially needed to learn this same lesson, didn't they? The glory of, of building their own house was vanity. Uh, look what the Lord Jesus Christ says in verse 15. Take heed, beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things that he possesses. The men and women in Haggai's day had lost their focus on God. Instead, they were building lives that had no lasting value. They never had enough. They were consumed by materialism. 
They even built houses like Solomon's. Remember the sealed houses? It's only Solomon, the only other individual in Scripture whose own house, the temple was, had, had cedar paneling in it, but his own house. And, then, and here were they trying to build houses like Solomon's house. But what the Lord Jesus warns in verse 27. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toll not, they spin not. And yet I send you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. The point hits home even more, I think, when Haggai in his next prophecy, less than a month later, stay in Luke 12 for now, makes this point. Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And it's referring back, isn't it, to Solomon's temple. And how do you see it as now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison as of nothing? So we know that then, don't we, from Haggai, and we've got a cross-reference there to Ezra 3, because remember how the old ones had that same feeling. They were upset by the building project. And ironically, that sour attitude led to them putting energy into their own houses, laying up riches like Solomon in all his glory. And yet God says through the prophet, I'm going to fill this house with glory. The glory of this house shall be greater than the former. Let's consider the implication of this for our own lives, though, that essentially if, as some of those brothers and sisters clearly did, and sadly in this case some of the older ones it seems, we start knocking the ecclesia, the temple of God, it can lead to us being distracted and we put energy into the wrong things, things to do with our own glory in the end and not God's. Don't put energy into putting down the ecclesia, constantly finding, oh, it's not like it. Don't do that. Focus on the word. Focus on building up. As we keep reading Luke 12, it becomes even more convincing that the Lord Jesus has the words of Haggai in mind. Uh, pick up in verse 28 now. If then God so clothed the grass, which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Seek not what you shall eat, what you shall drink, neither be of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after. And your father knows that you have need of these things. But rather, seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these, these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell that you have, give alms. Provide yourself bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not where no thief approaches, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so we see there some of the connections that are so clear, just to that one verse in, in Haggai 1 and verse 6, which is talking about considering your ways, sowing, eating, drinking, clothing, bags with holes and bags that are old. You can see so clearly there in Luke 12, the Lord Jesus Christ drawing on what was happening there in Haggai's time and the exhortation that he was giving, and the Lord Jesus Christ using that word to, to exhort us, to exhort every generation, to ensure that we get this, that we need to get our priorities right. And the question of priorities isn't simply a question of right and wrong. Of course it's right that we seek God's kingdom in our lives because he tells us to. But what we realize is that thankfully, God knows us better than we know ourselves. So although we should seek first God's kingdom simply because it is the right thing to do and God says we should, 
we're also pleased to learn that it's what's best for us, for our own mental health and for our relationship with others. If, if we think that our lives should be about chasing riches, always looking to get to the next step, then we're badly mistaken. Of course, we're not suggesting that people who are really struggling with money shouldn't be helped. Of course not. We should help where there's need. But materialism is a huge problem for mankind. It affects us all to some extent. We're too preoccupied with possessions and image. And because, certainly in the Western world, our economy depends on spending, we have to put up with advertising bombarding us all the time. So it's difficult to resist. Sadly, though, it's both socially destructive and self-destructive. It's associated with anxiety, depression, broken relationships. This is why we should listen to God. Look what the Lord Jesus says in verse 15 again. Take heed, beware of covetousness. Okay? A man's life doesn't consist in the things which he possesses. He spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. Yet this will I do. I'll walk down my barns, build greater. There will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine eyes, eat, drink, be merry. God said unto him, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which that for thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. It is such a powerful lesson, isn't it? We must, must learn. In doing a little bit of research on this, I, I came across an article which said this. There has long been a correlation observed between materialism, a lack of empathy, and engagement with others, and unhappiness. But research conducted over the past few years seems to show causation. A series of published studies show that as people become more materialistic, their well-being, good relationships, autonomy, sense of purpose, and the rest, diminishes. And as they become less materialistic, it rises. And when you see something like that, to me, I think, oh, of course, God knows best. God knows best. He's told us this. We've got to believe God, trust God, and try and make sure we're making that a reality in our lives. What is our priority? Is our priority to make sure that we're laying up treasure toward God? That's what we need to be doing. Where he says in verse 33, sell that you have, give alms, provide yourselves bags which wax not old. I don't think we need to be thinking to ourselves, look, we've got to sell everything that we have. Clearly, that would just have us relying on others, which we shouldn't do. What surely it's telling us is get rid of the things in your life that stop you seeking the kingdom. That's what's got to come first. So with those things in mind, let's go back to Haggai. And hopefully you can see why we've made such a big thing of that. You know, you, you know where are we? We're in the time of uh, the, the book of Ezra, the time of Zerubbabel, Jeshua. You know, they have been 17 years of the building stopping work, and God sent Haggai and Zechariah. The exhortation that Haggai gives is picked up by the Lord Jesus Christ and, and given to us all to make sure we've got this. Do not get your priorities wrong. Don't be about materialism. Make sure what we're looking to do is build up the house of God. 
That is where our priorities should lie. So that is why we've uh, spent some time going over and emphasizing that now. So let's just read that verse six again, and hopefully you can just see the power of the Lord Jesus Christ's words, and perhaps you want to put in your margin, Luke 12. Ye have sown much and bring in little. Ye eat and have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there's none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Of course, we're now going to pick up in the exhortation. Go up to the mountain, bring wood, build the house. I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. He looked for much, lo, it came to little. When he brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house it is the waste. And ye run every man to his own house. So that is such strong exhortation for us, isn't it? It can easily happen where we focus on making our lives more comfortable and shy away from ecclesial responsibilities. It's foolish. We should consider our ways. Are we finding that we're looking for much and it's coming to little? In other words, we keep working hard in our jobs, etc., but we find little fulfillment. To rectify the problem, we need to get the focus right. God's house comes first. The ecclesia is our priority, and never more so than now. But it's clear from the next verses that in this particular case, the Lord God intervened. So it seems that the Lord God, during this 17 years where they weren't doing, made sure they realized they weren't going to get anywhere if they weren't putting their priorities right. So how did God intervene? Let's pick it up now in verse 10. Therefore, the heaven over you, because you've not been putting your priority into God's house, it's for that reason that the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land and upon the mountains and upon the corn and upon the new wine and upon the oil and upon the, that which the ground bringeth forth and upon men and upon cattle and upon all the labor of their hands. And the connection that Haggai is making here is back to the law regarding the blessings and cursings. So there I've put two really important cross-references for us here. The two key chapters, one in Leviticus, Leviticus 23, and one in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 28. A note from the slide, the language which is coming out in these verses. Okay, so you can see there the rain, the, the land, the, the fruit, Okay, the cattle, the fruit, the land, the corn, the wine, the oil. You see these things? It's God saying, okay, I am the one who's stopping you being blessed because you are choosing to get your priorities wrong. You're choosing to do your own thing and not serve me and not prioritize the building of my house. So God has directly intervened. And he, through Haggai, he's saying, I'm stopping the rain to try to get you to listen to me, to get you to reprioritize your lives. A significant point that I think is helpful, and it's slight aside, but I think it's worth us making here, is that it can make all the difference in our attitude to giving in terms of prioritizing the ecclesia if we genuinely believe that the blessings in our lives are from God. That's a really, really important point. Do we believe that? You know, when we are praying and saying, thank you for the blessings in our lives, do we believe 
the blessings in our lives are from God. Because if we really do, the giving is easy. We're generous. We're not hoarding treasure to ourselves. If we are hoarding treasure to ourselves, and that's where our heart is, yikes. But if we understand that the blessings we have are from God, then the giving becomes that much easier. Well, here you can imagine Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the others listening to Haggai speak and being galvanized into action. And it's thrilling that they are. So see this now in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Joshua, the son of Joshua, it's great, isn't it? The same two people, they're there again. You know, these men, they've been working, they've got the foundation laid. Yes, there's been this break for some 17 or so years, but now it's these two again that respond to the word of God. Zerubbabel and Jeshua. And with them, all the remnants of the people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people did fear before the Lord. Then spake Haggai, the Lord's messenger, in the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. And the Lord stirred up. There's our word, stirred up. You know that word? Ezra 1 verse 1. Stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did work in the house of the Lord, of hosts their God, in the four and twentieth month, uh, in the 420th day, in the sixth month, in the second day of Darius the king. So it's great, isn't it, to see that how Haggai is able to stir them up and they respond to his word. And you can see, I hope, that from verse 15, how that, that corresponds to Ezra 4 and verse 24. Remember that place in Ezra where we left off the end of the brackets when the narrative picked up again, the last verse of Ezra 4, beginning of Ezra chapter 5, verse 1, this is when Haggai is given that message and they're now going to respond and they're going to get building again. It, it, and it's great, really, that less than a month from beginning to prophesy, Haggai could see God's word affecting these people for good. And, and as we noted in our first study that Cyrus was stirred up by the Lord through his word, uh, that the word of the Lord according to the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, and we're sure, aren't we, that it might be people like Daniel who were studying Jeremiah who would have shown Cyrus the time had come. But the point that I want you to get is it's the word of God, essentially, that is, is stirring Cyrus up. And, and now, once again, it's the word of God through Haggai and Zechariah, which is stirring up the Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the people. Uh, it's that same word that we're seeing there in verse 14. The word of God is powerful. It's dynamic. That's the word, isn't it, in 2 Timothy 3. Dynamis. It's able. Okay? It's dynamic. It's able to make us wise unto salvation. It's such a good thing to spend time in the word. We, we believe that we're on the brink of the Lord's return. So we should be considering our ways. Are we getting ourselves to places where the word of God is being expounded, which can stir us up to work. So let's reflect on that. Do we do the readings in our homes? And you know, if it's not the readings, is it another way that we are each day 
The Lord Jesus Christ, morning by morning, opened his ear to the word. It's so important that we're willing to listen to the word of God. When people come round to our house, do they know? Bring your Bibles because, you know, you're always going to do the readings when you go to that home. That, that's just part of the fellowship that you're going to share in that home. Do we do that? If not, what a great time Bible school is, isn't it? To say, you know, I'm going to change something. I'm going to consider my ways and I'm going to do something about that. I'm going to make sure that's a priority in our home. Do we prioritize getting to the Bible class, helping, you know, if there's two in the house again, and you've got young children, maybe one of them, someone's always able to get out to the Bible class. ABs, do, do we consider who's speaking in our ecclesias to ensure that brothers who are opening up the word are those who are being asked to speak? We're not asking people to just come and tell anecdotes and stories and just all sit there and say, oh, no, well, you know, that was, that was what a lovely, lovely, you know, nice thing to hear. Or, or somebody's telling us that they had a God moment when they walked up a mountain. That's not what it should be. We should be trying to expand the word of God. Is that what we're trying to get going? In our ecclesia, do we see the need to work to build up the house of God? Go up to the mountain, bring wood, build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Well, as we're thinking about being stirred up, we've seen in verse 14, it's the spirit of Jeshua and Zerubbabel, there in verse 14, which is being stirred up. Now, let's just focus on the word spirit for a moment. We, we know that their spirit was being stirred up by the word of God, Haggai, Zechariah. God's spirit has moved them. And in that sense, they, they've heard God's word and got into action. Now, if you'll come to Zechariah 4 with me for a moment, you'll see Zechariah speaking to Zerubbabel, Remember Zechariah and Haggai, these are the two prophets together, so we're not surprised to be turning here and we're thinking about the same type of thing. So here we see Zechariah speaking to Zerubbabel and explaining to him that it's in God's strength that he will build the temple. Zechariah 4 and verse 6. He answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof, with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Verse 9. Hands as a rubber wall have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall finish it, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. But so, coming back then to Haggai, notice in Haggai 2 and verse 5. So we've seen that Zechariah says to Zerubbabel, not by your might, nor by your power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts, you are going to have the strength to, to, to build this house, to be the one that finishes building this house. And here we see in Haggai 2 and verse 5, Haggai saying to them, the word, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you. 
fear ye not. Now I'm focusing on this because it seems to me that it's a concept we need to get our heads around. That if we're to be useful builders of God's house, of the ecclesia, we need to be listening to the word of God and developing a fellowship of spirit. Look at this passage from Romans 8 that I put on the screen for us. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. The Spirit, the Spirit of God, needs to bear witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Well, in being led by God's Spirit, these people clearly were reacting to the Word of God. And so their spirit bore witness to the fact that Yahweh was their God. Look at this verse in Philippians 2. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, let this mind be in you. This is the mind we're trying to cultivate. We're trying to get a fellowship of Spirit with the mind which was in Christ Jesus. The way we're going to do that is by humbling ourselves to listen and respond to God's word. So we'll come now into Haggai chapter 2 and we'll sort of leave that alone. But I just, to me, it was interesting seeing that word spirit going through and thinking, what's that about? It seems to me it's about the fact that, yes, God's spirit was there among them in the sense that Haggai and Zechariah was preaching the word to them. And it was that word which could empower them. So that word was important to get into them. They need to develop that fellowship of spirit. That's how they were going to get this house, the, the ecclesia, built up. So coming now in Haggai 2 and verse 1, we see that Haggai is sent again to them less than a month later. So you see the end of verse 15 uh, is in the sixth month. And now we see in chapter 2 and verse 1, in the seventh month, in the one and twentieth day of the month, came the word of the Lord, the prophet, uh, by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the residue, the remnant of the people, saying, okay, and we'll get into what he's saying in a moment. We think it's interesting that he does come now in this seventh month. This time, the, the, the 21st day, we know, of the seventh month, you'll recall, was the month when the Feast of Tabernacles was on, where the people constructed those, those makeshift tents, those booths, just as the children of Israel did while wandering in the desert. And, and Haggai, whose name means festive, was clearly sent towards the end of this feast. And I think it was sort of inspired, of course it was, timing, because the Feast of Tabernacles commemorated their, their liberation from Egypt by the hand of God. We know that from Leviticus 23, but also to get them to recognize the blessings that they had came from God. That's what they did during the Feast of Tabernacles, that they celebrated the fact that the blessings that they were given were from God. So you see what crucial timing it was. Um, and of course, it would have helped those of them who would come in in the time of Ezra, some that time earlier, 17 years earlier, when, remember, in Ezra chapter 3, we saw they kept the Feast of Tabernacles. So most certainly it would have got them thinking back to those days. But we know these people needed reminding, didn't they, that God was with them despite the adversaries that were there. God had a purpose with them to leave Babylon, to come to this land as he had when Israel left Egypt. 
They needed reminding that God would bless them if their focus was on his house. So we read then in, we've just read verse 2, we know who it's speaking to, and now the message is then, who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? In other words, in the days of Solomon. And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of that as nothing? Well, you will recall that there were those in the days of Zerubbabel Jeshua at this time earlier that had looked at this temple, the foundation being laid, and thought, oh, this isn't going to be good enough. But clearly, that mindset was still a problem even now. So Haggai, in this time, is still having to address that. But God's exhortation through Haggai is really strong. Verse 4. Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Joshua, the high priest. And be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord. And work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. Don't worry about making comparisons to days gone by. Don't worry about that. Instead, be strong. Now, it's no surprise that during the Feast of Tabernacles, their minds are being focused on the fact that God is with them. Now, you see, again, verse 5, according to the word which I come to you when you came out of Egypt, though my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not. Don't worry. The, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah were filling them with God's spirit word. So that's what we think is being meant there. So my spirit remains among you. Just as there at Nehemiah makes the, you sort of clearly connect the spirit with God's instruction through the word. Thou gave us also thy good spirit to instruct them. You testified against them by thy spirit in thy prophets. So, so you can see that when he's saying, my spirit remains among you, in other words, I think that's saying, look, through Haggai and Zechariah, I am speaking to you, just as I did through Moses when you came out of Egypt. So therefore, be strong, have confidence in what you're doing. If you're listening to the word of God, you're doing the right thing. So what God is assuring the people is that although they might feel that their work is small in comparison to the previous temple, Actually, the work that they're doing is part of a much bigger plan that God has. Look at this now in verse 6. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Now this becomes an incredibly helpful lesson for us too. God doesn't need great things from us, but he does want us to be strong and work in the truth. Throughout history, God uses believers to be part of his grand plan. Each of us, can play a small part in it. In this case, in their case here, they were hung up about past glories, the magnificence of Solomon's temple, and this one looking positively ordinary in comparison. 
But of course, in the end, it's the believers that God is interested in. It's not in any physical building. So Haggai is inspired to say in verse 7, I will shake all nations. Okay? Or verse 6, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And this is an amazing prophecy. It has relevance to their time, but in reality, it's looking way beyond their time right into the future. We know that because look at your margin carefully in verse 6, and hopefully you will see that it's cited in Hebrews 12, okay, verse 26. So that's an easy one to circle. We've put that on the screen for us now to see this citation. Now, I want you to notice that in Hebrews 12, think of the timing of the letter to the Hebrews, written not long before the AD 70 is going to happen. Notice that in a little while is not any longer in the site there. He's taken out in a little while and now said, once more, I will shake not the earth only, but also the heaven. And we realize that it's been removed because the events of AD 70 are about to happen at the point that Hebrews is being written. Now, wonderfully, we have an inspired commentary following the citation. So we'll just put in bold now the commentary which is going to follow this citation. And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. This is, I realize this is a bit difficult to begin with, so hold on, okay, and we'll explain it again if we need to, 10 times over in the coffee breaks. The Jews in the first century had the same hang-up as the Jews in Haggai's day. They thought that the literal house, the literal building, was the most important thing. It wasn't. And here, they were told, remember how the Lord Jesus Christ told them, okay, there shall not be one stone left upon another. Stephen told them, the most High doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. Paul seems to quote Stephen in making that same point. So we've got to make sure we understand this, okay? Make sure you've got this. The temple, there's not going to be one stone left upon another. Because the Most High doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. Doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. So let's ensure we've got this point. The things which are made, you see where I've put it in bold? That's that Hebrews 12 passage, which is an explanation of Haggai. The things which are made the temple, the city of Jerusalem, they will be removed. And they were in AD 70. The things that are made are going to be shaken and removed. We understand that. What therefore remains are the things which cannot be shaken. The grace of God shown in people who want to serve and glorify God in their lives. Here is the clincher. Look at this. Okay, The things that are made are going to be shaken and removed. Wherefore, okay, those things which cannot be shaken will remain. What are the things which cannot be shaken which will remain? 
example, look at this. Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building. The ecclesia will, of course, ultimately manifest the glory of God in his kingdom. So coming back to Haggai 2, if you've not sort of uh, left there, great. We conclude with certainty that verse 6 is about AD 70. The heavens and the earth are metaphors for the Jewish order. We can prove that, and I've put the cross-references on the screen, from Deuteronomy uh, 32, verse 1, and Isaiah 1 and verse 2. The heavens and the earth, they're metaphors for the Jewish order that are going to be shaken and removed. But we know and believe that there needs to be another shaking of the land that will take place, one that will affect more than the Jewish order. So these verses we believe, yes, they speak about AD 70, but they look beyond that too, to the final shaking of the land that will take place, which will be followed by a temple being built, to be filled with men and women who have sought the kingdom of God in their lives, and as immortal saints will glorify God. Now Ezekiel 38 speaks of that time. Just hold Haggai 2, and we'll briefly turn to Ezekiel 38 to just put a cross-reference in place. We're drawing to a conclusion. Ezekiel 38. So Haggai 2 and verse 6, I will shake the heavens, the earth, the sea, the dry land. Ezekiel 38, you know, you know this chapter well, but let's pick this up in verse 19. For in my jealousy, obviously we all know this is the last days, in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken, surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel, so that the fishes of the sea, the fowls of the heaven, the beasts of the field, the creeping things that creep upon the earth, all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountain shall be thrown down, and the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. So we see back in Haggai 2, how Haggai is picking up the language of Ezekiel 38 and helping us to see how far-reaching this prophecy is. It's at that time, it's at that time, brother and sister, that eventual shaking that takes place, that we will see ultimately the fulfillment of verse 7. It's at that time, the desire of all nations will come and God will fill his house with his glory. Haggai 2 and verse 7. I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. And it's true to say that at that time in the kingdom, that the kings of the earth will bring their glory as the queen of Sheba came to Solomon. The temple will be a stunning place full of the natural materials, the gold and the silver, things like that that God has created. 
But of course, the glory that God is interested in is the, des the things desired that have come from all nations. Okay, let's just make sure we've got this. The desire of all nations or the desirable things of all nations. That's what God is really interested in. The multitudinous Christ, the glorified saints, the people of all nations who have sought to glorify God in their lives. People like Zerubbabel and Jeshua who've been stirred up by the word of God. Now, please make sure you've got a cross-reference for this. That word desire, desirable things, it's not used that often. But one time that it is used is in 2 Chronicles 36 and verse 10 about the desirable vessels. Remember the vessel. The vessels that were taken, 2 Chronicles 36 and verse 10 will tell you the vessels were taken to Babylon. But time is coming when they will be brought out and be able to be part of God's house. The desire of all nations, the Lord Jesus and the saints we believe. But I'd like us to conclude this study now by going back to Ezra, Ezra chapter 5. Just going to have five minutes max in Ezra 5. In our exhortation on Sunday, we will sort of pick up again in, in Haggai chapter 2 and we'll spend some time focusing on Zerubbabel, uh, the one who we're told to behold the man and draw our minds with that to the Lord Jesus Christ. But here we want to sort of conclude this story, as it were, and make sure we understand that Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the remnant of the people, those faithful ones who were stirred up by the word of God, they did get back onto the foundation of that temple and they got that temple built. And you're going to see now how it is that they finished that work. The thrilling thing to be able to see. We left off a while ago in chapter 5 and verse 2 and 3. And Tatnai was there and we saw the letter that he wrote to try to stop them building the work. And the Summary verse in there is Ezra 5 and verse 5. But the eye of God was upon the elders of the Jews that they could not cause them to cease till the matter came to Darius and then they returned answer by letter concerning this matter. The adversaries couldn't stop it. This was God's work and his eye, which we can equate to the angels, was at work. It was over those who were working in this. And although Tatnai and Shethar Bosnai and their companions did look to try to stop the house of God being built, it was irrelevant. They couldn't now. They were up against the angels of God. If God be for us, well, who can be against us? The work couldn't be stopped. And just see how that the word cease there in verse 5, okay? They, they tried. They could not cause them to cease. It's the same word in chapter 6 and verse 8 which says this, moreover, and you remember how this is Darius' reply to Tatnai, moreover, I make a decree, what you shall do to the elders of these Jews, okay, you're going to help out Zerubbabel and Jeshua and, and those people that are building the house of God, that of the king's goods, even the tribute beyond the river, forthwith expenses be given unto these men, that they be not hindered. The work could not stop. It couldn't be ceased. It couldn't be hindered work of God was going to be completed. The temple would be built. 
What an amazing point in history. How the ecclesia in those days would have seen that God is able to do more than we can imagine. Every provision is made. Verse 9, that which they had need of, both young bullocks, rams, lambs, with a burnt offering of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the appointed uh, of the priests which are at Jerusalem, let it be given day by day without fail, that they may offer sacrifices of sweet savours unto the God of heaven, and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also I've made a decree that whosoever shall alter this word, let timber be pulled down from his house, and being set up, let him be hanged thereon, let his house be made a dunghill for this. And the God that had caused his name to dwell there, destroy all kings and people that shall put to their hand to alter and to destroy this house of God, which is at Jerusalem. I, Darius, have made it a decree that it be done with speed. Then, that night, governor on this side of the river, Shethar, Bosnai, their companions, according to that which Darius the king had sent, so they did speedily. And the elders of the Jews builded, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Idu, and they builded and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the commandment of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And you can put in your margin there, brothers and sisters, 516 BC against verse 15. And this house was finished on the third day of the month Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. 516 BC, 70 years after the destruction of the temple in 586 BC. Amazing word of God coming true. What an amazing time. They prospered. And I want you to just pick up that word, they prospered in verse 14. And I'm going to tell you that it's the same Hebrew word that's used in Isaiah 55. And I've heard brethren using this in prayers. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. God's word will prosper, brothers and sisters. And although we might at times feel like there are delays, adversaries, challenges, which there are, his word will prosper. So let's be willing to put our hands to the work of building even though we might be just a small part of the jigsaw, let's use the time to edify the ecclesia. We can have absolute confidence that the God of heaven is at work. His angels are bringing about his purpose under the direction of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's finish with some love. Use our time wisely. Give time to the word, because it's the word that can stir us up to work. Cut out materialism. Don't be swayed by the world's marketing. Instead, give willingly. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Trust that God really does know what is best for us. Recognize that God has a grand plan, that we're just a small part of it. But what he wants from us is a desire to be strong and to build. And finally, be sure that God's work will be finished. There's that lovely verse in Philippians 1. Let's conclude with that. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will form it till the day of Jesus Christ.
So Haggai chapter 2 is where we want to sort of start. It's only a couple of months later that Haggai prophesies again in verse 10. So you might remember we got, certainly in the adult study, we got down to around verse 9. Uh, and then Haggai 2 and verse 10, there's another prophecy. And it's just worth pointing out that between verse 9 and verse 10, Zechariah 1 and verse 1 to 6 fits in. So you can see that really easily by just looking at um, the date that's given in Zechariah 1 verse 1 and then Zechariah 1 verse 7. And you'll realize that Zechariah 1 verses 1 to 6, easily thing to put into your margin, goes between verses 9 and 10 of Haggai chapter 2. And we'd like to take a simple point from this short passage in Zechariah 1. And it's to point out the repetition, and the, the teens managed to find this in yesterday's quiz, of your fathers. So in verse 2, the Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. Verse 4, be not as your fathers. Uh, verse 5, your fathers, where are they? Uh, the end, halfway through verse 6, did they not uh, overtake your fathers? So, so we see there, and what we're trying to think is why this matters, is that in this next prophecy in Haggai 2 that starts in verse 10, that Haggai is very much causing them to reflect on their past too, thinking back. And Haggai gets them to think back at least as far as the point that the, the foundation of the temple was laid, some 17 or so years earlier, we suggested. So you see in Haggai 2 and verse 18, um, consider now from this day and upward, from the 4 and 20th day of the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the, the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. So clearly like Zechariah, Haggai wants them to look back and reflect and then consider their lives from this day forward, okay, from the day that Haggai is speaking, from the day that they had made a choice to start building again in the temple. So why would Zechariah and Haggai get them to reflect about their past. Well, once or twice through this study, we've picked up on the fact, haven't we, that it does seem that there are some amongst them who are hung up about a former glory. Uh, so in verse three, who is left among you that saw this house in her former, in her first glory? And what the prophets are telling them is that even if those days were as wonderful as you built them up in your heads to be. What use is that to you? You need to consider your lives from now. And so the prophet then says in verse 11, thus saith the Lord of hosts, ask now the priests concerning the law. So it's gonna give them an example to try and help them to understand this concept. Ask the priests concerning the law. If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt you touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. And the key point is this, holiness cannot be transferred. So in other words, you can't hang on to past glories as if that will make you holy. Holiness can't be transferred. Ask the priest. If someone is carrying holy flesh in his clothing, does that mean that the things that it touches become holy? The priest will tell you. The answer is no. And so Zechariah has made them realize that their fathers weren't in a good place. And now Haggai is saying that even if they had been in a good place, what use is that to you? 
even more concerning is what Haggai says next. Because whilst holiness doesn't transfer, uncleanness does. Verse 13. If one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? The priests answered and said, it shall be unclean. Then answered Haggai and said, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, saith the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and that which they offer there is unclean. Now we can put some cross-references in place now. I think these are useful cross-references, aren't they, to, to Numbers 19, to Leviticus 13. You recognize Numbers 19 about the, the Lord, the red heifer, isn't it? We see very clearly that uncleanness is easily transferred. The law of the red heifer was there, wasn't it? As a way back, if they did come into contact with a dead body, because they would become unclean. Similarly to Leviticus 13, the laws concerning leprosy involved people being in isolation um, if they were unclean. Because sadly, uncleanness is so easily transferable. And so this nation that's referred to in verse 14 I believe is a reference to the generation that was put into captivity. And so what Haggai is telling them is, this nation that you're trying to hold on to, no, don't worry about them, that they were absolutely, what they were offering was not clean, so don't in any way try to hold on to them. They were unclean, and that uncleanness is transferable. Do not feel the need to try to hold on to them. That's not going to help you at all. So twice now, he then says, consider from this day and upward. So you see in verse 15, and you see again in verse 18. And it's the same point he's getting them to think back to. He wants them to recognize that before they started building on top of the foundation, clearly God wasn't with them. So this is saying, look, before you even started, look, so think about this, verse 15. Now I pray you consider from this day and upward, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord. So let's just remember our timings. The foundation of the temple was laid. So they got a stone in place. Yeah? They got the foundation laid. But then they stopped working. But now they got started again. So what he's saying is, before you started laying that next stone, so, so this in that 17-year gap, have a think about that time. Since that time, in that 17 years, were, when one came to a heap of 20 measures, there was but 10. When one came to a wine fat to draw out 50 vessels of the press, there were but 20. Why? Because I smote you with blasting, with mildew, and with hail on the labors of your hands. Yet ye turn not to me, saith the Lord. Do you see that this is exactly the same point that he made in chapter one, that we would call it, okay? In other words, you looked for much, but it came to little. Could you, do you remember that? So I put it there on the screen, Haggai 1 and verse 6, okay? And then uh, verse 9, verse 10 and 11. And you can see that essentially it's the same point that's being made. You came to, to try to get this. So let's just see that again in verse 16. You came to get 20, but there were but 10. Okay, you looked for much, but actually there was little. And just as we saw back in chapters 1 and verses 10 and 11, so if you just scan back there, and if you were making notes as we went, you would have made a note in verse 10 and 11 
to, to Leviticus 26 and to Deuteronomy 28. You remember that we, it drew us back to the blessings and to the cursings. And what God was saying is, I'm the one who's called for a drought upon the land, verse 11 of chapter 1. I'm the one that's withholding blessings from you because you're concentrating on your houses and not concentrating on the building of the house of God. And can you see that's exactly the same point that we're seeing here in verse 17 of chapter 2. I'm the one who is cursing you, as it were. And once again, that, that blasting and mildew, this time that links us to Deuteronomy 28 again and verse 22. So, so hopefully that slide, a bit confusing perhaps, but hopefully you, you, the point you can get from it is it's the same point that Haggai was making in chapter 1. He, what he's telling them is, can you not see that God is not blessing you because you are not putting your focus into his house, into the building up of the house of God, the ecclesia, we would say, of course. So Haggai says uh, in verse 18 and 19, consider now from this day and upward, from the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, even from the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed yet in the barn? Yea, as yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree hath not brought forth. So consider in this 17-year point period, is, has things, have been, things been going well for you? And the answer, of course, is no. But the end of verse 19, from this day, I will bless you. Now that you've made the choice to start building the temple again, from this day, that choice you've made, I will bless you. Brothers and sisters, what a great exhortation that is for us. No matter where we are in our lives, no matter what has gone before, none of that matters. It's what we do from this day. From this day, we have a choice. Are we going to put our energy and efforts into the house of God, into the ecclesia? From this day, the day you make that choice, I will bless you, says the Lord. Now, I love this. Look, hold this now. Haggai chapter 2 and verse 19. We're going to put a cross-reference in place. Come with me to Ezra 6. I love this. God says, from this day, the day you've chosen to, to build my house, you watch, I will bless you. Look at this. Ezra chapter 6, verse 8. We've read it before. We're going to read it again. Look at this for how God blesses them. Remember, God has withheld the corn, the wine, the oil. We saw those things. They're there on the screen, what God withheld. Okay, but look now, Ezra 6 and verse 8. Moreover, said Darius the king, I make a decree that you shall do to the elders of these Jews for the building of this house of God, that of the king's goods, even of the tribute beyond the river, forthwith expenses be given unto these men, that they be not hindered, and that which they have need of, both young bullocks, rams, lambs for the burnt offering of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, oil, all the blessings, they're coming according to the appointment of the priests which are at Jerusalem. Let it be given them day by day without 
Baal, that they may offer sacrifices of sweet savor unto the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and of his sons. Isn't that just wonderful, brothers and sisters? From this day will I bless you. And there we see the blessings pour in because they've made that choice in their lives. And so we can see that Haggai was exhorting them, showing them their decision to get building was a wise one. God would bless them in their work. Brothers and sisters, we believe that to be true now. If we'll put our hand to the work of building up the ecclesia, God will bless us in our lives and ultimately bring us to his kingdom. If you just hold on to Haggai 2, so we can leave Ezra 6 now and come to Zechariah chapter 8. I just want to point out to you, just because, you know, I realize we haven't spent as much time in Zechariah as Haggai, but I want you to see that actually this same point is being made in Zechariah chapter 8. So this, what we've just seen in Haggai 2, that there'd be, there's essentially been cursings because they've not been doing, they've just been concentrating on themselves. And now they've made a choice from this time forward, God is going to bless them. So here in Zechariah chapter 8, see if you can just follow these ideas. Verse 9, thus saith the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. Well, we've seen that exhortation, haven't we? That's Haggai 2 and verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel. So let now your hands be strong, ye that hear in these days, these words by the mouth of the prophets, that which were in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid that the temple might be built. So you can see again, the cross-reference, I put it on the screen for you. We're talking about this same time. For before these days, there was no hire for man, nor any hire for beast. Neither was there any peace to him that went out or came in because of the affliction, the adversaries. For I set all men, everyone against his neighbor. But now I will not be unto the remnant of this people, as in the former days, saith Lord of hosts. For the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give her fruit, and the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their dew, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And it shall come to pass, as ye were a curse among the heathen, O house of Judah, Deuteronomy 28, and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing, Deuteronomy 28. Fear not, Haggai 2. Let your hands be strong, Haggai 2. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, as I thought to punish you when your fathers, your fathers, provoked me to anger, saith the Lord of hosts, and I repented not, so again have I thought in these days to do well unto Jerusalem and do to the house of Judah. Fear ye not. So do you see, brothers and sisters, that Zechariah is giving them that same message. And we believe Zechariah, like many of the prophets, and, and certainly like Haggai, goes between messages which are particularly relevant for the time in which they were living and messages which are far-reaching in time, some still yet to be fulfilled. And here in chapter 8, certainly the last few verses in from verse 20 to the end are absolutely latter-day verses. You know, they're, they're about things that are going to happen with Israel uh, and how when many nations will want to take hold of the Jews and say, we will go with you. So, so, of course, that is a time still to come. And, and the verses we've been reading through, you know, they, I'm sure they probably have a, an application as well, but they certainly seem to be around the present. We've just linked it all with Haggai, haven't we? 
But the beginning of Zechariah chapter 8 most certainly has an application to both times. You know, so let's read Zechariah 8, and you can picture it in terms of both the times that they lived in and, and what a blessing it would have been for them, but also you'll be no doubt thinking about this in terms of the hope that we have in the kingdom. So, so have a look at this now, Zechariah chapter 8 and verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I was jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I was jealous for her with great fury. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, sorry, the Lord, I am returned unto Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, there shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem, every man with his staff in his hand for very age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, if it be marvellous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, should it also be marvellous in mine eyes, saith the Lord of hosts? Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. And so reading that, we realize that has to be looking beyond these days to the ultimate fulfillment when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and Israel will be turned and they will indeed recognize God as their God in truth and in righteousness. Uh, what a thrilling thing to be able to see that. One person from this time that we are sure will be there to see that is Zerubbabel. Come back with me to Haggai 2. Because you'll see now how that on this same day that Haggai had given that prophecy, there in verse 10, verse 18, it gives the time, the time stamp. On the same day, in verse 20 now, right down to the end of the chapter, in Haggai chapter 2, Haggai is told specifically to speak to Zerubbabel. And it's almost as if this happens to emphasize the fact that in the end, the word of God needs to touch you as an individual. Haggai 2 and verse 20, or verse 21 now. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shape the heavens and the earth. And I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. And I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nation, the heathen. And I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them. And the horses and their riders shall come down. Every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, and will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. Well, like many great men of faith, he was being told that God's purpose was beyond these times. But his place in God's kingdom was assured. And we note the similarity in language. You'll see this straight away in verse 22. 
to Exodus, to when the, the uh, Israelites left Egypt and God overthrew the Egyptian chariots with their horses and their riders. And he's saying, look, there's going to come a time when once again, this will happen. And we notice too how that this language is also drawn on Ezekiel 38. Do you see that? Every man's sword against his brother. You've probably got it in your margin. If not, it's worth sticking in there at the end of verse 22, isn't it? And so we see how that this is looking beyond these times. And Zerubbabel is being told, a time is coming when this is going to happen. But don't you worry, Zerubbabel. I have got a special place for you. And what I think is fascinating here is that of all the people stood there on that day, this man, Zerubbabel, knew the lesson that Zechariah had said just a few weeks earlier. The Lord has been so displeased with your fathers. You see, Zerubbabel's grandfather only reigned three months before being deported to Babylon. He was a wicked king. Will you come with me to Jeremiah chapter 22? So hold Haggai 2 and come with me to Jeremiah. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, that Zerubbabel, his grandpa was one of the last kings of Judah. Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 24. As I live, saith the Lord, though Kaniah, and this is the same person, Kaniah is also called Jeconiah and Jehoiachin. Okay, so it has three names. We've come used to that in our study, haven't we? We keep seeing people, Daniel, Zerubbabel, with, with multiple names. Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Though, so let's read it again with some, the right emphasis. As I live, saith the Lord, though Coniah, Zerubbabel's grandpa, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet upon my right hand, yet would I pluck thee thence, and I will give thee into the hand of them that seek thy life, and into the hand of them whose face thou fearest, even unto the hand of Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. Zerubbabel, of course, would have known this prophecy. He knew his grandfather was a disgrace, as God describes him in verse 28. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised idol? Is he a vessel wherein is no pleasure? Wherefore are they cast out, he and his seed, and are cast into a land where they know not? So Kaniah, Zerubbabel's grandfather, been cast out into Babylon all those years before. Zerubbabel would have known that full well. And yet you know from our first study that Zerubbabel was numbered with the vessels that returned. He was a man who had made a choice in his life to forget the past and instead to make sure that his focus was on building the house of God. And he was stirred up, as you remember, by the word of God, by Haggai and Zechariah. 
So look back and just put this cross-reference in now. I'm sure you have already. Haggai 2 and verse 23. Remember, Coniah, though he were the signet upon my right hand, God said, yet would I pluck thee hence. And here God says to Zerubbabel through Haggai, I'm going to make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. The signet, the seal, the stamp to seal. What a contrast. Your history is irrelevant, Zerubbabel, because of the personal choice that you have made to serve, to be my servant, you will have a position of authority. Come with me to Zechariah 6 now, so we can leave things go. Come to Zechariah chapter 6. And you'll see how that Zerubbabel is promised by God that he will be a king priest in the age to come. So Joshua, his friend, his companion, is told in verse 12 of Zechariah chapter 6, speak unto Zerubbabel, saying, thus saith the Lord of hosts, saying, behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Now, of course, we know the one that built the temple of the Lord is Zerubbabel. We know that from Zechariah 4. And verse 9, he, he is the one that builds the temple. So this is speaking of Zerubbabel. He's the branch. Even, verse 13 of Zechariah 6, even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and he shall sit and rule upon his throne. And he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. What amazing verses to read. This is absolutely wonderful, isn't it? And just note again from Zechariah chapter 4, just come back with me to verse 6 again. And we realize what a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going to open this up now, Zerubbabel is. Zechariah 4 and verse 9. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. Think about this man, this man who was rooted in Babylon, okay? Remember, that's what his name means, and yet he led the people out of Babylon. Though he had a claim to the throne through his ancestry, he never attempted to become king, confident that God would ultimately bring him to his kingdom. And here in Zechariah 4, I just find this so lovely here in verse 6 of Zechariah 4, this is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. This is wonderful. Firstly, we realize, if we haven't already, that Zerubbabel is driven by the word of God. His spirit being poured out through the inspired prophets. It's the word that empowers him, not his own strength. And he's being told, you're not going to build that house in your strength, but rather through God's grace. And the mountain before him in verse 7, well, surely, brothers and sisters, we worked out by now that that must be speaking of the adversaries. But those adversaries, they'll become a plain. 
No, that mountain, this, this insurmountable problem will be done away with because the Lord God is in control here. His grace can deal with the greatest of problems. And then as we've read already, we see in verse 8 and 9 that he is the one who laid the foundation. We saw that in Ezra 3. He is the one who finishes it. Ezra chapter 6 and verse 15, you can put in your margins against finish it. That's the day they finish it in Ezra 6 and verse 15. Of course, what God started, he will finish. When his word goes out, it will accomplish that which it's purposed to do. And so we reflect on what a type of the Lord Jesus we have in Zerubbabel. The Lord, of course, was rooted in Babylon in the sense that he shared our nature. But he led captivity captive. He too could have claimed the throne, but he knew that the time wasn't right. He too was motivated by God's word day by day, morning by morning, we read. And he used the power of the word to destroy his adversaries, ultimately dealing with the greatest adversary, sin and death. And as a result, he was the one who laid the foundation of the house. He is the one who will finish it, the ecclesia. He is the author and the finisher of faith. You'll know, of course, that he is described as my servant. Do you remember in Isaiah 42? Behold, my servant, mine elect. And if we realize what an amazing thing that is there in Haggai 2 and verse 23, O Zerubbabel, my servant, I have chosen thee. These are words about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's God's servant. He is God's elect. You'll realize, of course, that he is the branch. Isaiah 11 tells us that. And look again at Zechariah 6 and verse 13. He shall bear the glory. He shall bear the glory. Of course. The Lord Jesus Christ manifested the glory of God. In John 1 and verse 14, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We've seen Zerubbabel is associated with God's grace. What did they cry out as he put the stone in place? Grace, grace, they realized that it was in God's power, it was in God's grace that the temple was being built, the temple was being finished. And so, brothers and sisters, what an immense blessing it is to know that all the scriptures are teaching us of the Lord Jesus. So as we behold the man, Zerubbabel, we're being taught of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just read again. Chapter 6 and verse 12. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch. He shall grow up out of his place and he shall build the temple 
of the Lord. In helping us to behold the man, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God has directed the lives of men and women to give us an insight into the work of his son. Let us now focus on him. In the bread and the wine, we see the symbols of his love, a life given in total dedication. Though the son of God, he emptied himself, taking upon him the form of a servant. This was the man who never deviated from the purpose of God. And by adhering to the will of his father, through listening to the word, and looking to the joy that was set before him, the Lord Jesus Christ overcame. And as a result, God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. He was the living stone, rejected of men, but chosen of God and precious. And it's through him, brothers and sisters, it's our association with him that enables us to be living stones, built up as a spiritual house. It's through him that we are part of a royal priesthood. Because of him, we are chosen, the elect, the servants of God. It's through him that we can deal with the adversaries in our lives. How thankful we should be for the Lord Jesus Christ. God's provision to enable us, men and women sown in Babylon, to have this opportunity to be part of the building that is the Ecclesia, the house of God. And although there will be struggles ahead, if we forget the past and instead hold on to this, make our priority the house of God above all else, God assures us we can share in the blessings of the kingdom age. I'd like to finish in Psalm 126. Psalm 126, the Song of Ascents. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dreamed. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. Then said they among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weeping, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him.